Thank you, Ben. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. My name's Kevin Harlan, and uh, it is really great to be back with you uh, in this way. Uh, an important task for any pastor or, a matter of fact, any orator who's going to speak before a group of people is to anticipate the questions that they might ask along the way. Uh, normally, that comes later on in a message, sort of during the second half of the message where it really becomes critical that you know what someone might be thinking or how they might be wondering what the questions that might be going through their head. But I realized this morning that it might be important for me to answer a question that many of you might be asking right now at this moment. Who are you? <laughs> so I, I know that some of you are there this morning, and some of you, that's not even funny that that question is going through your head. And I guess if we polled you this morning as to who is this guy standing before you, I, I'm thinking there might be four responses that would come out from this group. Now, there aren't many of you that would give this first response, but I'm guessing that some of you, when you heard my name was Kevin Harlan, you're hoping and thinking that... I might be the sportscaster. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get it out of, way, out of the way. If you've been around Kansas City for a while, you know Kevin Harlan does 810 sports stuff. He's nationally known, broadcasting, former voice of the Chiefs. And I hate to tell you this and disappoint you this morning, but I'm not him. Uh, I've disappointed many people over the last 25 years who thought I was him. And no, I'm not his brother either. So, I mean... And I've never said this to anyone when they ask me, are you related to him? They're like, is he your brother? And it's like, like what mom would do that? <laughs> I mean, really, honestly. I actually had that question. I met him this year uh, in 2016, late in the year. And for my friends in this group, I think you're more surprised the fact that I'm wearing a suit than the fact that I met him. <laughs> Uh, we were actually on a plane together. This is the Milwaukee airport. I stalked him after he got off the plane. I saw him get in our, on our plane, and as he was getting off, um, at, he walks by, and I, I just, I, after 25 years, we've just never met. And uh, so I held out my hand. I, I said, uh, are you Kevin? He looked at me, and his wife was with him, and uh, he said, yes. And I said, my name's Kevin Harlan. <laughs> And her head, his wife's head just immediately whipped around and she said, I can't believe this, we've been wanting to meet you. <laughs> so I had told one of the colleagues that was, we were traveling with to get his phone ready and, uh, and I was, I'm always nervous about taking photos with people, you know, it's like, I just don't want to be that guy. And uh, we stood there and talked for a while and his wife actually said, would you mind if we took a photo together? <laughs> oh, like. No, I don't mind at all. <laughs> I sent that to my kids, and my, my boys were like, you guys look like you're two long-lost brothers that haven't <laughs> seen each other. No, what mom would do that, really, honestly? But anyway, finally met him. Um, he actually said to me, he, he knew, it's kind of freaky how much he knew about me. And uh, he, he knew I was a pastor, uh, and he said, you know, some Sunday morning, if you, if you want me to, I could come and preach for you. So... <laughs> So I'm sorry to disappoint you again. You know, I'm not him. Andy offered to be here this morning. So I'm guessing there's a good number of you that would know me this way, which is the third way, is that you're the guy on the community group videos. And uh, this would be true. I am that guy. Uh, but for those of you that only know me in the two-dimensional way, there's more to me than that. Not much more, but there is more to me than that. And for all my friends who watched last year's series and were kind enough to text me to tell me that my shirt was unbuttoned, thank you very much, you know. 
If only someone would have told me before we recorded, that would have been really good. Um, for those of you that were here for last week's uh, announcement that Andrew is on sabbatical, uh, I might be this. I'm the third guy. Third thing is I'm the substitute teacher. And if this is what you're thinking, you are getting warmer. I'm part of the plan for covering the 12 weeks that Andrew will be gone. Um, and it's great to be here to be able to do that. Uh, I, I do know what it's like to be here, though, and so I'm not your normal substitute teacher, even though it's been a while. Be kind to me, please. <laughs> Maybe this is your response as a fourth, that I'm a Christ community pastor, and this is true. Uh, my wife Sharon and I have had the joy of being a part of this congregation for 23 years, uh, serving as your pastor or a pastor here for the last 15. And the majority of that time, the majority of the last 15 years as a, one of the teaching pastors here uh, at the Leewood campus. But it's been almost two years since I've been here uh, in this role uh, speaking to you on a Sunday morning. And those of you that just think it was just yesterday, how time flies when you're having fun without me, right? So uh, it is great to be back with you in, uh, this morning in this way. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along this morning, I'd encourage you to open up and, uh, to Matthew, the 26th chapter of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the Old Testament or New Testament. I do remember that. It's in the New Testament, and it's the, toward the end of the New Testament. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible and want to follow along, we'd love to have you do that. Uh, we have Bibles in the back. Uh, but as I said, I'm not just a substitute. So if you go get that and then walk out, I will see you do that. And uh, I don't I probably didn't need to say that. <laughs> as you heard read this morning, we continue walking through Jesus' final days. Matthew's account of those final days. And this morning, we come to a very, very familiar story, a story that's most commonly and likely in your Bible, there's even a heading right before the story begins called The Last Supper. One of the world's most famous paintings by Leonardo da Vinci is called The Last Supper, recording and inspired by this very moment in Jesus' final days. It's hard to miss when you look at this painting that the disciples are doing something very familiar to all of us. They're eating together. Have you ever stopped to think about how many moments we have recorded in the Gospels of Jesus and the disciples eating? I mean, just last week, last Sunday, we saw him at the table just preparing to eat, just, just as Mary anointed him with oil. We have stories of him feeding 5,000. We have stories of him attending a wedding feast eating with close friends, dining with the tax collectors, and eating with sinners, both men and women. And in the four Gospels, we have over 35 stories of almost 20 different accounts of Jesus eating. Now, this shouldn't be surprising to us if, if you know your Bible. For you see, food was God's idea. He made it for our enjoyment. His creation design involves different options, different tastes, and different experiences. Did you ever stop and think about that? I mean, God's plan for feeding us could have been, here's what you eat. And it's this one thing. He could have packed everything, every nutrient into one thing. Thank goodness it's not cauliflower, by the way. <laughs> it would have been horrible. But just, it could have been one thing. That is the one vegetable I don't eat, by the way. That's, I, I'm good with all the rest of them, but that one, I think it's useless. I, don't, I, I personally think it's from the fall. I don't know. 
His creation design it makes it clear that food is much more than fuel. It's communal. It's to be enjoyed with others. It's for our pleasure. Do you remember the creation account in Genesis? Immediately after creating us as humans, it says that out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And his first command to us, often we just skim right over this, his first command to us was to take care of the food, to make it better, and to eat it, to enjoy it. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Make it better, he says. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. First thing he says is you, you can eat, enjoy this. Now, we know that there's a comma there at the end of this command. This verse ends with a comma, which tells us there's something else coming. And unfortunately, we know that he goes on to instruct Adam not to eat of one tree or he would die. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve disobeyed. And just as God said, death and all of its accompanying brokenness began to vandalize God's perfect creation. But let's not miss the fact that God's first command was to take care of the food, to make it better, that he made for our pleasure and to eat it and to enjoy it. So as we come to Matthew's account of the Last Summer Supper, I think we'll see that this meal together is the beginning of something brand new. And it will be hard for us to miss as we read this story of this table that there's one truth I, would, I just don't want you to miss, that everyone is invited to Jesus' table. You see, the story begins with the disciples asking Jesus a, a really pretty simple and common question that I'm guessing most of us have asked and certainly heard. And it's this, hey, hey Jesus, um, where are we going for dinner? Actually, it's more than this, but I'm guessing it did involve something that we all feel. The disciples are hungry. It's a holiday, and, and dinner needs to be prepared. Someone should start thinking about it. And so in verse 17, we read this. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, which is the holiday here, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare to eat the Passover? They are looking at him as the teacher and the rabbi, and they know this calendar oh so well. And they knew that they needed to begin preparing this important holiday meal. It's the kind of meal of remembrance that you celebrate with families, with loved ones. And although traditions have changed over the years, and it's unclear exactly how Jesus and his disciples were observing this holiday meal, the Passover was seven days for God's people to pause and remember how God delivered them out of bondage and slavery from the Egyptians. And this seven-day celebration all began with a meal. Now, the name of the Passover, if you're not familiar with the history, the name of the Passover comes from a horrible and redemptive story that you can read about in Exodus chapter 12. In that story, God was trying to get the Pharaoh's attention so that he could set his people free. And, and Pharaoh just wouldn't listen. And there came one final plague, the most horrible of all the plagues, the death of the firstborn of every household in Egypt. But God's people were given an invitation for a way out. 
They were given instructions to slaughter a lamb for dinner and to take the blood from the lamb and to, to smear that blood over the top of their door. And as God would bring judgment on the people of Israel or on the people of Egypt with the death of the firstborn in each household, he would pass over those homes with blood over the door. He would pass over. And the horrible plague came and God's people were passed over along with anyone who responded with God's invitation to put blood over the doorposts. And after 430 years in bondage, God's people were set free. And they left in such haste. Pharaoh ordered them out of the country. They left in such haste that the bread that they had, were having for dinner didn't even have the opportunity to be leavened. And is why this is called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This is not just another meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. And this will be important for us to remember as the story develops. Because the focus of the Passover meal is a perfect lamb. For many, many years, the blood sacrifice of animals became significant in a way that God's people would be made right with God, in a way that they would have any hope of following him faithfully. A little later in Exodus, in Exodus 24, we see that God makes a covenant with his people and it involves animal sacrifice on the altar and the covenant is sealed in this way. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, and this language will be familiar later on when we hear from Jesus, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, it will be important for us to remember this context as we enter the story. And as the disciples share this holiday meal together. Let's continue looking at that in Matthew in, in verse 20. It says, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Now, once again, just like last week, we get a glimpse of a coming betrayal. And, and we know this story really well, too, don't we? I mean, one word that has become iconic for betrayal and all that is wrong in a person is Judas. I mean, you, you should try this. Google Judas. Don't do it now, but do this at some moment. By the way, this is how pastors learn about these characters in the Bible. No, it's not true. But you, you Google Judas. It's not confusing. There aren't like multiple people. I mean, this is Judas. He has become the icon for betrayal and, and, and the, what's wrong with this world. But something stood out to me as I read this familiar story again this week. Something that I don't know that I had quite ever seen before. It's staring at us right there in verse 22. It's been there all along. I don't think somebody just added it to my Bible. It seems that all of the disciples felt guilty. It says they were very sorrowful. This word has such deep, deep meaning. It has a, the idea of grief attached to it, of mourning. There was truly deep pain from the disciples as they thought about this possibility that they had betrayed Jesus. 
And they asked him one by one, one after another, it says, they asked him, is it me, Jesus? In that moment, I think that each one of them realized the depth of their sin and own sin and brokenness. And they were certain that Jesus was just about to call them out. They felt the weight of their sin. And although in that moment, Jesus goes on to make it clear that it was Judas that he was speaking about, we must not miss the fact that they all thought it was them. And as they go one by one and ask, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? We get to this last person, Judas, who likely with 30 pieces of silver in his possession, says to Jesus, is it me? And Jesus simply says, you have said so. Hey, we read familiar stories like this and often just miss the moments. We hurry past them. We just become so patterned at the reading. We've heard this since we've been growing up. Oh, sure, it's the story of the Last Supper. I just want you to stop and think about the tension in the room at this moment. They've all felt the weight of their sin, deeply sorrowful mourning, and now one of them has been identified as a betrayer. And Jesus speaks these words. He said, it'd be better if you'd never been born. And we look on this side of history 2,000 years later, and I mean, who likes Judas? But this was their friend. Feel the grief of this moment for Jesus, for these friends of Judas, and even what Judas must have been feeling at this very moment. We've all experienced a holiday meal gone wrong, but probably not quite like this. And it's in this moment, with this weight, that Jesus adds a startling twist to the Passover story. You see, it was customary during the Passover meal for the head of the household to explain the Passover along the way as they ate together with different items that were symbolic. And even though we don't exactly know what they did in that moment, because the tradition has changed over the years, this is something that they would have been very familiar with. It's likely that they would have done this ever, their entire life growing up, possibly even together as a group with Jesus leading them through the Passover. But at this moment, Jesus begins breaking bread. And in the middle of the meal, which is specific to the Passover meal, they begin to pass bread. Now, most meals, and meals even still today, dinner begins or supper begins with bread. And it passes around. That's how you measure the quality of a restaurant, uh, by the quality of the bread that comes out in advance. That's why the Bristol is very high on my list. Those biscuits are just, I mean, that's what it's supposed to be right there. But here it is in the middle of the meal, and now Jesus is breaking out the bread. And this is the tradition of the Passover. And Jesus says words that are maybe familiar to us today, but have, must have been remarkably shocking to the disciples as they heard them for the very first time. Take 
eat. This is my body. I, I can just see them like, wait a minute. What did you just say? Where's the story about how this bread reminds us that our, our ancestors didn't have time to leaven it? They had to get out quickly because of God's deliverance. Did, did you say something about your body? Or let's maybe give them a little more credit. Think with me for a moment, and let's just say they did in that moment connect the dots between the fact that Jesus had been telling them multiple times that he was about to die, and therefore now this bread represents his body as he's about to die. Have you ever stopped to wonder if they just thought to themselves, well, why change this, Jesus? Maybe we should have a whole new thing just for you. This is the Passover. Let's not change this. We've never done it this way. Stick, stick to the script, Jesus. Move on to the cup where you tell us about the lamb and the blood of the lamb that's going to take away the sin. And just as they might have been thinking this, Jesus continues, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't want to make too much of it. I know I keep saying it, but we just read right past this, the familiar, and don't stop and think about how startling these words would have been to hear. These words were so surprising that three of the gospel writers record them almost word for word. They want to make sure that we don't miss that Jesus' startling twist to the Passover story is beginning something brand new. Jesus is this new lamb. His blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and everyone is invited to the table. The Passover meal through entire history has been pointing to this moment. These moments of deep grief and mourning as they felt the weight of their own sinfulness. And as one of their friends was identified as a betrayer. And Jesus holds up the cup of red wine. And just think about this, the weight of this moment. Judas sitting likely right next to him because he's dipped his hand in the cup. And Jesus says, drink of it, all of you. You were invited to my table even Judas. Yes, God's righteousness demands justice, but the blood of Jesus provides the way for mercy. And Jesus stands before the one who had just sold him out for 30 pieces of silver and invites him to the table, offering to forgive him for the heinous crime and the act of betrayal that he's just done to him. Drink of it, all of you, Yes, even you, Judas. And in this moment, Jesus changed the story by telling us how it would be his blood that brought about the forgiveness of sin, not the blood of a perfect lamb. And the bread would now remind us of his body that was broken and cut up to pay for the penalty of sin that we all deserved. And although I'm guessing they were startled by the way that Jesus changed the words to this, it didn't take them long to connect the dots of how this first Passover pointed to one that was to come and the unblemished lamb who would be sacrificed on our behalf. 
in the Gospel of John, who's there at the table, he makes sure to include these words from the Gospel. I wonder when it dawned on him that these words had been spoken as John the Baptist first saw Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Peter, in his first letter, will make it clear to his readers that there's only one way for us to be ransomed and set free, and that is with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. They, they may not have seen it right there at the table, but they would come to understand why Jesus changed the story. The Passover was and always has been about pointing to a coming day when once and for all, a lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And that wasn't the only thing that pointed forward. Look with me at verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink with you new in my Father's kingdom. After sharing several glasses of wine, various symbolic moments with them, Jesus lets them know that this is the last and the first supper that they will share together and points to a future feast. Now, to understand the significance here, we have to go back to the parallels of the Passover story. The Passover was not only people being freed from Egypt, but being given a new land. They were not just saved from something, they were saved to something. And so Jesus lets them know that, that he is the one who will bring redemption and freedom, and he points to a future land where he will be waiting to celebrate with them. In some ways, he's announcing a new exodus. And we've all been set free. We've all been invited to be set free from bondage and slavery. And we are all waiting for a future feast where we will once again together experience life as it was meant to be. John, as an elderly man in exile on the island of Patmos, was given a vision of this future feast and although he struggled with words to explain it, he wrote it down and as like this. He said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe, her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And all are invited to his table. I think this text calls us to reflect and respond to three questions this morning. So as we wrap up, let me just ask you these three questions. Really, let me ask all of us this, these three questions. Do we see ourselves as guilty betrayers? If you'd been at the table with Jesus, what would have been your response? Would it have been, is it, is it me, Lord? Or would it have been, no, that can't be me. Some of you here this morning just haven't faced the fact that you have a problem. There's no way that you can be good enough for God to accept you. The scriptures tell us that his standard is perfection. It's the way he created us. 
And as you and I both know all too well, we are far from perfect. And just like God warned Adam back in the garden, our sinfulness will lead to death. Either our death or the death of a perfect lamb who came to die on our behalf. God does not grade on a curve. You can't just be better than most or I'm better than Judas. We know that deep inside us, don't we? And we shouldn't hide. We are broken and sinful creatures and our only response should be and can be, is is it me, Lord? An invitation to experience forgiveness and freedom at Jesus' table makes no sense. It absolutely makes no sense unless we believe we are guilty and in need of great grace. So let me ask again, do we see ourselves as guilty betrayers? So here's another question for us that I believe we must reflect on this morning. Is that have I accepted his invitation to the table? You go back to that first Passover, think with me, back to that first Passover in Exodus 12. God laid out all the conditions, but it was still up, for the, up to the individuals to, to carry them out, to respond in faith. If they did not respond in faith and put blood over the doorpost as God had instructed, there would be death. They simply couldn't sit in their house and debate what God was really meaning when he invited them to avoid death by putting blood over their doors. They couldn't internally question if God's really going to do that. I mean, he's a loving God, isn't he? I mean, would he really do that when, when nighttime comes? They could not ignore his invitation and live. And unfortunately, it's likely that some did. And so this morning, I want you to hear from me that he invites all of us to his table for forgiveness. But we are required to respond in order to be redeemed. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Did any of you receive a a gift card as a Christmas gift? Okay, so just three months ago, right? Get a gift card. Likely many of you got gift cards for Christmas. Uh, There were $150 billion of gift cards sold in the last year, over $150 billion of gift cards. So here's the next important question for all of you that received gift cards is do you know where they are? <laughs> or, or have you used them, maybe? It's like, this is a really the critical question. Over a billion dollars a year of gift cards go unused. Uh, just Friday night, I went to a movie with a friend, and uh, as I was uh, booking the tickets, I recognized and remembered I had a gift card. Actually, the gift card was, I, fortunately, I'd already added into my AMC account, and I saw it there, I was about to spend my own money, just totally had forgotten that the gift card was there. And in a similar way, everyone is invited to his table. But the painful truth is that not all will come. So have you accepted his invitation to the table? If your answer this morning is no or I'm not sure, let me just encourage you to take that step this morning. In a moment, we will literally come and gather together as a family around the Lord's table. And he's inviting you to come. It requires nothing more than admitting that you are guilty and believing and trusting that his blood is all the grace that you need. You don't have to clean up first. You don't have to be good enough. There aren't magical words to say. 
He invites you to come and says to you, drink of it, all of you. Finally, we need to ask ourselves this question for all of us this morning. Do I keep his sacrifice fresh in my memory? You see, there's a reason we gather regularly around the Lord's table together as a church family because it's just easy for us to forget. We can subtly start to believe that we've got things under control, that we really don't need God or even his grace. We profess to be followers of Christ, but we can go days and weeks without thinking about him or acknowledging him, acknowledging his presence in our life or even the need for his grace in our life. And so as a church, we pause together to gather around the table to say that we all are in need of his grace and forgiveness. It's been said that there is no pride in the communion line. We stand together, actively responding to his invitation, all saying together that we are great sinners in need of grace from a great Savior. You could say we're practicing the act of remembering together as well as we wait, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. For this Passover meal, which pointed to the miraculous grace of, a God in, of God, our God in Egypt, now has a new focus. And he asks, asks us to continue this act of remembering and looking forward. And this very morning, many followers of Jesus around the world will gather to together to do this very thing to carry out his request, to remember him, and in so doing, acknowledge the life-giving grace that he offers to us, to you, on this very day. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, re recorded Jesus' words this way. He said, on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And although remembrance is at the heart of coming to the table this morning, there's more to it. For in coming, we acknowledge today, this very day, our very real need for Christ, for his forgiveness, for his provision, for his death-defeating grace. Now, here at Christ Community, we practice open communion, which means you don't have to be a part of our church family to participate with us. All that re is required is that you've responded in faith to his invitation to the table. So come to the get table, gather in groups of four to six, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and partake. Everyone is invited to his table. Will you come? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this tangible reminder of our great need for you. Forgive us for when we forget. Lord, you are so generous to extend this to all. And we stand before you recognizing we are guilty and in need of your grace and grateful for the perfect lamb that you were and the way you poured out your blood for us.